Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On Commons People this week. Labour would seek a final deal that gives full access to European markets and maintains the benefits of the single market and the customs union. Rejoice, rejoice. Labour has a position on Brexit. So the electorate has every right to reconsider their decision. A major intervention from a major figure, but not everyone is happy about it. So I think he should go back, do his homework, and try and make a statesman-like speech, uh, rather than one riddled with errors and humbug. All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett, and this week I'm joined by Ned Simons. Hello, Ned. Hello. How are you? Good. Good. Uh, Kate Forrester. Hello. Hello, Kate. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. Mr. Paul War, how are you? Quite cold. Warmed up yet? Just about. Yeah, I was at Wembley watching Rochdale get beaten by Spurs. Anyway, let's, let's crack on. Shall we? What I mean, this has been a crazily busy week. There's going to be a lot of Brexit talk this week, listeners, but please bear with us. I think it's important we cut through all the noise. There's been so much going on. Let's start with Labour, shall we? Because Jeremy Corbyn finally clarified Labour's position on Brexit this week. The party now supports keeping the UK in a customs union with the EU, but it does not back single market membership, which includes a free movement of people from the EU. Uh, Labour does not currently back holding a referendum on the eventual deal, but it does remain open to the idea. Anyway, the Labour leader confirmed all his position in a speech on Monday. Here's a clip. Labour would seek a final deal that gives full access to European markets and maintains the benefits of the single market and the customs union as the Brexit Secretary David Davis promised in the House of Commons, with no new impediments to trade and no reduction in rights, standards and protections. And here's Theresa May's response to Labour's plans during PMQs on Wednesday. Now, of course, that's in direct contrast with the Labour Party's position, who want to be in a customs union, have free movement and pay whatever it takes to the EU. That would mean giving away control of our laws, our borders and our money. And that would be a betrayal of the British people. There's a lot to unpack here. It's about Labour first. Jeremy Corbyn's speech delivered in Coventry. In what, I mean, I wasn't there, but it looked like from the TV there was like snow going on around him. <laughs> it was a really weird sort of optic. And he did this thing where he had this long... He had a quite a long speech, didn't he? Mm. Which was reading off the auto cue, And he did this thing where he sort of forgets that it's not the end of a sentence. And then he sort of <laughs> couldn't read it. It was a weird delivery, wasn't it, Ned? Yeah, I mean, it's always weird delivery. He's not the best public speaker, I don't think. Although many people agree. But one thing about annoyed me about this speech was that it wasn't particularly new. I mean, Labour's position of being in a customs union, not the customs union, has been their position for a long, long time. Now, it was good that he, you know, him giving a speech on Brexit, which I don't think he's done for a year or something kind of clarified it but it wasn't as far as i could see a u-turn or a new position they've been saying that for a long time unless but, i'm wrong but politically me. it did the job didn't mm. it which yeah. is that it, it changed the weather of the week which is what you're supposed to do mm. as the the opposition leader um and what was really interesting was the way the cbi st- st- straight away 
basically supported the the rough tenets of what Corbyn was saying, not everything, and that infuriated the Tories. I mean, no end because you know the party of business suddenly losing business, and they could see this sort of this dynamic opening up um, with their own voters as well as business. And I suppose in that sense, Corbyn it did a very effective political bit of management this week. Mm. I mean, do you say this has been a position we've known in Labour for a while? Emily Thornbury said it, I think, on Peston a few weeks ago, didn't she? Yeah. She explicitly yeah, yeah. said that it would be a customs union. But, Kate, the fact that it's Jeremy Corbyn saying it, and for a long time people have been unsure about his position on Brexit, does he even care about it? Is the fact that he's now adopted this position, having been a lifelong Brexiteer before even the word Brexit existed, show that Keir Starmer, the Emily Thornbury's of the Cabinet, have won the battle here? Uh, I think it does, actually. I think Keir Starmer's done some quite good kind of political work to to get it this far. Um, And I think Corbyn was under pressure from a lot of his activists um, to really, really set out Labour's store properly. Um, So I agree with Ned in that it's not new. It is something that they've been saying for a while, but he has very much sort of clarified and solidified the position now. So now we know Labour's position, or it's clarified, solidified, all that kind of stuff. What happens to the Labour voters who voted Leave, Paul? Are they going to feel betrayed by this? Well, there's no evidence that they will, because although there were a couple of Vox Pops in Bradford and elsewhere this week, uh, the most striking thing was some polling by Kevin Cunningham, who's an Irish pollster, showing, uh, particularly amongst Labour leavers, what they like about the Labour Party. And these are people who really are devout Brexiteers, okay? But they really, really like nationalisation. They really, really like the fight against austerity. They love the NHS, want more spent on it. And actually, they like Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. So you can argue that Corbyn is one of the very few people in the Labour Party to hold on to those voters because actually he's offering them a sort of um, a clear red water that they've wanted for years. These are the people in the heartlands who are saying something must be done. And Corbyn's saying, yeah, I feel your pain on Brexit. And that's why Corbyn's most telling speech, a bit of the, this Monday, was not in the speech, was in the Q&A when he said, yeah, there's a real anger, an anger amongst people who felt left behind. And, and he tapped into that in a way that he hasn't for a while. And also he managed to kind of steal Boris Johnson's ideas in a way when he accepted the idea there's a Brexit dividend and it will be spent on the NHS, which I think, Paul, you've been saying this podcast week after week, why haven't the Tories made more of that? And now Corbyn's nicked that idea. I also really liked in uh, Corbyn's speech when he opened up with a critique of the Tory position, saying it's just slogans, you know, they want this, they want this, they want a bespoke deal. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, Corbyn's <laughs> announcing the bespoke deal that he wants. I, yeah. I thought he did it really well. And he completely got away with it and it was expertly done. I think what Labour have done, uh, there's a lot of people now who are trying to replay the referendum that it was all about free trade. I don't remember very many posters going up about free trade. I remember a lot of posters going up about immigration. Right? Mm-hmm. People can deny that all they want. But it's true. A lot of people voted to leave the EU because they wanted controls on immigration. And Jeremy Corbyn basically said, you know, we won't be part of the single market, therefore we won't have freedom of movement. There was enough there to make people think that he would want to see, some, not reduction in immigration, but certainly more control over it. So I don't think he, I think you can sell this to Labour leavers because you can say, look, the thing that you're really concerned about, actually, we are going to Well, he's using the same language as the government on that which is taking back control of migration. So although they're saying, look, we want to be in a customs union, when it comes to things like single market, hold on a tip, yeah, we want to have control over migration so we won't be full members of the single market. And they'll end up at the same place as the government on that, which is trying to reassure people they're doing something about EU migrants, reducing the number or taking back control of the number, while at the same time, in in reality, letting business 
get the market labour that it wants. I know a lot of the Brexiteer Tory MPs who listen to this podcast, and there are many of them, will be screaming right now saying that this is a betrayal of labour. A lot of labour voters are going to see the fact that you're staying in the customs union, you've got no say over tariffs, you've got no say over your trade policy. People will see that actually ultimately is a betrayal. And I guess the Tory party can use that attack on them, as Theresa May did, we heard in the clip saying, you know, actually... You're, you haven't got complete autonomy over your decision making. Now. Yeah, and that's something that Lem McCluskey was warning about um, a couple of weeks ago in a in a speech in Q and A. He did that the party does have to be wary of uh, of annoying the Leave voters, the, yeah. the Labour ones. And just finally, this is a bit of a victory for Chukramuna, isn't it? I mean, Chukramuna is a man who's sort of derided by a lot of people, but he has plugged away at this customs union idea for a long time through Open Britain. Him, Chris Leslie, other people involved with that, and actually, when a lot of people tell him to be quiet they've managed to get the Labour leadership to actually kind of come meet them probably more than halfway. I don't know about that. I mean, people like Keir Starmer aren't very warm to the idea. They, People like Keir Starmer have been trying to hatch behind the scenes this new Labour policy and haven't felt helped by Chuka and some of the sort of ultras on the Remainer type bit of the Labour Party. I think he's done quite a good job. Um, I mean, yeah, he's put himself out there. He's, he's done one thing that's really interesting is that Chuka has identified himself He's got clear political definition now, which is someone in the Mandelson bit of the party on Europe, utterly, utterly pro-Europe. Uh, and But it's a bit of a contrast to when he was talking to you, Owen, if I remember rightly, about a year ago, playing with the idea about, well, we really need to crack down on immigration, you know, where we need to wake up and smell the coffee. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very and funny, now he's yeah. totally in favour of a single market. He's much further in favour of a single yeah. market than he ever was. And yet he was querying single market but and migration last I year. So that's yeah. why someone like Keir Starmer actually is playing perhaps a cannier game. What can you do? What's practical? What's doable within the Labour Party? I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll say it anyway. I was at the correspondence dinner last night. Oh, there we go. Where Theresa made the, yeah, the joke really. And I was talking to a Tory MP there about Chukramuna. They'd brought it up. And I said, I always thought it was strange that not more was done when Chukramuna said if it was a choice between staying in the single market and keeping freedom of movement or not, then he would pick leaving the single market. Controlling freedom of movement was more important to him. And I said, and they said, when did he say that? And I said, yeah. it was about a year ago. And they and this quote is sort of being he's done very well at kind of moving away from this this quote but that's, that's just a plug for people to read your story we must like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tweet it out later on everyone um, you are listening to Commons People make sure you uh, tweet us your comments and questions using the hashtag Commons People and make sure you leave your comments on iTunes as well because that helps other people find what I'm sure we'll all agree is the best podcast we produce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's move on now to the Irish border because the EU published its draft version of the withdrawal agreement this week. Remember that thing that was agreed in December? Turns out it wasn't agreed because there's some controversy about the nor- about Northern Ireland and the border with Ireland. Here's May's verdict on the Brussels proposal. The draft legal text the Commission have published would, if implemented, undermine the UK common market and threaten constitutional integrity of the UK by creating a customs and regulatory border down the Irish Sea. And no UK Prime Minister could ever agree to it. Uh, Of course, the Northern Ireland border. Some people say it's complicated. Not Boris Johnson. Let's have a listen to what we had to say on the Today programme this week. There's no border between Camden and, and Westminster, but when I was Mayor of London, we, we anaesthetically and invisibly took hundreds of millions of pounds from the accounts of people travelling between uh, those two boroughs without any need for uh, border checks, whatever. It's easy as moving between boroughs in London. Not today with the snow, I'll tell you that much. Um, this draft agreement from Brussels, we've done a bit of a thing about this sort of six things in it which could bring down the whole thing. It's quite mad, right? Because it's sort of really taken what was kind of loosely agreed in December between the EU and the UK over things like Ireland and gone, no, right, 
Ireland's definitely staying in the customs. Northern Ireland's definitely staying in the customs union. Well, I think actually, again, we were talking last week before the Checker Summit about what was going to come out of that. Uh, are they going to have a proper uh, specifics on what to do with Northern Ireland? And they they didn't. And Barney was saying in this press conference, "Look, this is our specific plan. We're waiting for your specific plan. If you don't like ours, show us your idea." And I think you know that's a perfectly fair approach for the for Brussels to say, "This is our negotiating position." show us your one that's better and we haven't done that yet i think um a lot of brexiteers after that sort of tried to play on the fact that barnier didn't understand the sensitivities of the situation and that you know the the dup i think said that he was trying to the eu was trying to annex northern ireland um and theresa may was very robust about it in her response in pmqs as we just heard well, donald tusk uh, said on thursday there can be no frictionless trade outside the customs union in the single market. The Pascal Lamy, the former head of the World Trade Organization, told MP this week, the, 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 the trade arrangement, the border arrangement the UK wants with Ireland does not exist anywhere in the world. Frictionless borders with no checkpoints and two different customs regimes. This is completely pie in the sky, right? And often what um, Brexiteers will say back to the idea that it doesn't exist anywhere in the world is, well, yes, we know, but we want our own bespoke deal. But it's not that it doesn't exist anywhere that's the problem. It's that you can create a new thing, but what is that new thing? Like, literally show us how it works. Well, Boris said it pulled, didn't he? He said, you know, you put some cameras up, you photograph what's going on, you get a bit of money. It all sounds rather easy, doesn't it? Well, the problem is that Northern Ireland is a good example of all the other complex solutions that you might need after Brexit. So it's not just Northern Ireland. There are other bits of, you know, trade and... Um, customs alignment and border ports that might have to have all this high tech to ensure this so-called frictionless trade. But don't forget, the government have moved on that. They say they want it as frictionless as possible now. That's a big, big difference. They used to talk about frictionless trade. They don't now. Frictionless as possible. Um, And that means, basically, they're going to have some friction. They're going to be some obstructions to to trade in goods. And um, I don't know. I think, ultimately, that might be, in Northern Ireland's case, the way we have to go. Because... There's there's very other few there are very few ways to square this circle. I think the, the government backed themselves into a corner by saying things like there will be no new physical infrastructure at the border. Yeah, think, well, they, they, should, they shouldn't have said that, should they? they should, yeah, just, there might have to be. Physical there's going to have to be. Isn't they there? don't want it. No, no but that's could, different. You, yeah, you could phrase it. We don't want it, but then they said there wouldn't be. Yeah, I guess what they're trying to do, and I think Bernard Jenkins said this on Newsnight, is say we're not going to put a border up. If you want to put a border up, EU, that's your job, and make the EU look like the bad guys in this, which yeah. is a risky strategy to take right because we're also not the bad guys because we're the ones leaving well i don't know i mean the thing is that we've talked about this before that um and kit Malthouse has made this point which is rhetorically the brexiteers are saying look on tariffs any kind of tariff never mind a hard border we don't we don't want new tariffs with europe we, we just want a free trade area thank you very much if anyone's going to impose tariffs it'll be europe it won't be us and rhetorically, it kind of works, you know, in other words, yeah, we're leaving. But, you know, why? Why? Sh- if anyone does change things, it will be you. Now, it's dangerous because in the real world, you've got to actually hammer out a legal text and a legal agreement for agreeing. But I think there's a lot more heat than light on this this week. And I suspect all the cooler heads I've talked to are saying that, look, this was inevitable. It was always going to be a bit of a row about this. Things will calm down when it, we've got a long way to go to October when we sort out this withdrawal agreement. And by the time we get there i suspect they'll come to some kind of compromise that 
will, I know it's hard to think of it right now, but there's some form of words that will be happy for all sides, just as they did in December. And don't forget, it's just going to be about words in the end. It will be about heads of agreement rather than very, very detailed specifics. It's only words, Paul, but words are all I have. Um, <laughs> the thing I was going to say was in this document <laughs> buried... I don't know, I went off on a Bee tangent then. Um, the only thing that's buried away in this was... Uh, Ned, this is serious, pay attention. Right. There was something about trade deals, right? And right. it said that uh, the UK can't sign any new trade deals. It's really weird how they're this. They put out this draft agreement, and they put out a memo with the draft agreement. And the memo is written like a questions and answer thing. And one of the questions EU asked itself was, can the UK negotiate and sign trade deals during the implementation period? And the answer was, the UK cannot sign trade deals during the implementation period. Nothing about negotiation. Mm. When you look into the text, it says the EU can't do anything which would undermine... The, the union during the implementation period, you could argue that negotiating a trade deal, even if it comes in after implementation mm. period, would seek to undermine the union, right? So it seems to me that even in that, they're trying to stop us negotiating trade deals, which is the reason why David Davis thinks you should have an implementation period. But then if it's open to interpretation, that's okay then, isn't it? Because then if you, you could negotiate... I don't think it is open to interpretation. <laughs> okay. I think they're ruling out us negotiating on trade deals and no one's noticed. <laughs> No, maybe, maybe. But don't forget, a lot of this, the British public are not bogged down in the detail. And That's why t- it's our job, Paul. Tomorrow's speech... Friday speech. S- sorry, Friday speech yeah. by <laughs> Theresa May um, will be interesting as to whether or not, it, how detailed it is. Um, the cabinet, we were told today, signed off on what was called a, a positive discussion and a debate about her speech. Curiously, they were all given the speech in paper form like school kids around the table 30 minutes before the cabinet meeting. They're not allowed to take it home or out like sort of exam paper. They had to leave it back in the room because they're terrified of this speech leaking overnight. Um, and But then after reading it for 30 minutes, a bit like a lock-in that we've all been uh, used to as journalists, you, oh, you're, yes, you're yes. locked into a, a room and you're given a, a confidential document. You can't take it away, but you can sort of comment on it. So we're given that half an hour and then they had this discussion in cabinet about it. And a few of them picked a few holes in it by the sounds of it and they're going to try tweak a bit of the speech but nothing major but the, the reason I suspect there is so much unanimity and there's no argument is because it is again more fudge and she's going to have this big phrase about managed divergence tomorrow I can't see as yet we haven't seen what the speech is going to have in but I can't see there being any detail on Northern Ireland. You are leaving yourself hostage to fortune here, Paul. I can't, I can't, see any, can't see any detail on Northern Ireland. I can't see any detail on, on even trade as a whole. I suspect there'll be more... That number 10 was saying privately, this will be a broad speech. That always reeks to me of the fact well, that there isn't a, well, a lot of detail. Well, you listen to this after speech, tweet us, hashtags, comments, people, let us know how right Paul was. And Paul, you mentioned Major in your conversation there. And yes, because Sir John Major yeah. this week uh, gave a speech. Is this a, is this, is this a quiz? I feel like you guys didn't like that segue. <laughs> I, I thought it was fine. I was going to steal your joke. Didn't, okay. Did I actually use Ma- the word major? Did. I obviously yeah, did. Uh, there you five go. Minutes ago. Anyway, John Major just gave a speech this week. Uh, he said that MPs should be given a free vote and allowed to order a second referendum. The former Prime Minister uh, argued many voters now believe they've been misled. The electorate has every right to reconsider their decision. Here's a clip. A meaningful vote has been promised. This must be a decisive vote in which Parliament can accept or reject the final outcome, or send the negotiators back to seek improvements, or order a referendum so the public may approve what has been determined. And here's a response from his old sparring partner, Sir Bill Cash. 
I thought I was watching another edition of Spitting Image, actually, when I watched the speech that he gave today. Uh, I actually think that the real problem here is that he can't come to terms with the fact that he's lost the debate. Here is an equally succinct Jacob Rees-Mogg. So I think he should go back, do his homework, and try and make a statesman-like speech, uh, rather than one riddled with errors and humbug. And of course, it wasn't just Sir John this week, it was Tony Blair as well who made a speech on Brexit, saying the EU needs to reform freedom of movement in order to offer a different vision which could perhaps stop Brexit. There's definitely been a coordination there of these former Prime Ministers and their Remain speeches. Does it amount to a hill of beans? Because, I mean, John Major's speech felt like it could have been given at any time, really. At least Blair's speech had a bit of a kind of do this yeah, and this might change. Yeah, although Tony Blair makes interventions on this now every other week, it seems, yeah. every week. It's like another rare intervention from Tony Blair. Major doesn't speak out as much, so I thought it was a bit more interesting. Was it, was it a, a major it, intervention? Yeah, yeah, but, you know, that, that'll joke. Did write that in my story, actually. But, um, <laughs> dear, oh dear. But I thought, you know, his push for a free vote, I could possibly see that happening. I don't think it would change the result of anything. But you could see there being a clamour for that at some point close to the time. Um, I don't know if it will really have that big impact. I think Paul made a good point in your memo on Thursday, which was Jacob Rees-Mogg said that Major had run the most aggressive whipping operation in history ever mastered it. Jacob Rees-Mogg was not in Parliament during Maastricht. He certainly so wasn't. It's, it's but, you know. but it just shows he's part of that folklore now of the, of the Eurosceptics, as if he were, had been around for a long time. But this is going back to the fighting the battles. I mean, Bill Cash versus John Major over Europe. I mean... Yeah, well, we know who won, ultimately, don't we? Bill Cash. Yeah, I know. Let's be honest. No, I no, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's why I think they're quite cock and Nadine Doris basically saying that John Major was a traitor. Oh, you know, uh, I mean, that kind of language, you know, it, you it's, it's not that outlandish guys, anymore, right? you know, because they're the victors. But, but, but you, can't be, you can't be calling people short of the Tories but by calling, you know, Sir John Major, former Prime Minister, a traitor, that's just going to open up all... I mean, the wounds are already pretty open, right? But it's just sticking a finger in it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, haven't we? Like, the Brexit saboteurs and things like that, and it leads to MPs like Anna Subri receiving death threats on both sides, actually. Andrea Leadsom's received death threats, um, and I just think that sort of language just hypes up that rhetoric unnecessarily. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the only thing I wanted to ask you guys. Rhetoric, you say, yeah, don't rhetoric, you? Yeah, rhetoric, yeah. I didn't want to pick you up on it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Maybe she's there using the classical pronunciation. Or it's because you say, you say rhetorical question, don't you? Yeah. Which well, is that always what question? throws me. Yeah, no, very no. good. Yeah. I, I wanted to... Have, have you used words before, Kate? I feel, no. like we're, I feel like this is even more boring than Brexit. But do we think that um, one of the accusations is that people like Major and Blair and all those people are using Northern Ireland as basically a pawn in which to stop Brexit and they're not actually that bothered about it. I mean, I don't really believe that, but that's an accusation. Yeah, I find it hard it's to believe Blair's that John legacy, Major um, yeah. and Blair would, wouldn't would care about the legacy of the Good Friday Agreement, mm. the two Prime Ministers that were around when it was implemented. Yeah, I, I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, obviously they, they believe that. And the big problem, as ever, with anything that this government does and this Prime Minister does is the DUP. And the DUP now have much more say than they ever had under Major. Under Major and Blair, don't forget, the DUP were minor irritant, you know. Um, but now they they really prop up the government. And so, you know, I asked this morning whether or not the PM had shown her big new Brexit speech to Arlene Foster, as well as the Cabinet. And, so uh, you think wrote it for? and, and number <laughs> 10 were sort of, you know, decided to sidestep that question. So let's see. Let's move away from Brexit now. Labour General Secretary Ian McNichol has resigned his post. Uh, Paul is going to give us a very short talking through of all the shenanigans. But I want to read one tweet from a Corbyn-supporting Labour member called Max 
Shanley, who tweeted, I hope Ian McNichol has a terrible life. I can't think of anyone more deserving of one than he. Uh, Paul sort of, Paul sort of grimaced on his face <laughs> like, a, like a man who's eating a lemon. Um, yeah, why is he McNichol, McNichol, why is he so hated by the Corbynites? Well, that guy, Max Shanley, who actually um, was on the conference platform a couple of years ago, um, uh, making his uh, momentum-style case for change. Um, he actually did retract that tweet later because he realised that it was so inflammatory that uh, and personal that it wasn't appropriate. But he did reflect a sort of wider mood amongst some Corbyn supporters where they felt that Ian McNichol had been the hammer of the left and they all sorts of accusations are levelled against him, you know, that he didn't really facilitate this massive increase in membership and that he didn't really uh, want those new members to take part in the leadership contests in, in 2016. So there's all that stuff is, is a bit of background. But um, McNichol says that's all very unfair. He's just a general secretary. He's an official. He doesn't actually determine disciplinary cases personally. He doesn't determine things like membership lists, etc. Um, but it is significant that he's going. Um, so who's going to who's gonna step in and, and take over? Who, who, the, give us, who are the runners and well, riders? Well, the, the the two, I mean, hot off the press today, John Landsman, the Momentum founder, uh, finally came clean uh, and said he wanted to, to run for General Secretary's job today. Can I just read a little bit of a statement on that? He says he was approached by a number of friends and colleagues and he's decided to apply. And in this long statement, he goes on and said, I would especially like to encourage, he said he wants other people to apply, I would especially like to encourage more women to apply. We've only had one female General Secretary and we should have more women in Labour's top team. Don't stand them, mate. Find a woman who you think can do the job and support her, right? Well, it did sound like mansplaining, didn't it? Unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we were in real danger of a woman having a senior position in the Labour Party there. So, so I'll uh, put myself forward. Unbelievable, isn't it? But I think he's, that is a big problem he's got. And that that is one of the weapons that um, the main contender against him so far, Jenny Formby, who's a real veteran of the union movement, or certainly the Unite bit of the union movement. Um, she used to be political director of Unite, and she now is the Southeast regional officer for Unite. Um, the reason she went to the Southeast, I was told by somebody, um, not someone friendly to her, was that she the Southeast had a, a really important role in, in re-electing gen, um, General Secretary Len McCluskey, and she mobilised support on his behalf in his battle against Gerard Coyne. But she's important because, A, she is a woman, and B, she's got Unite's backing, and normally those two things would, would see you home in this kind of race because... Uh, the left definitely dominate the NEC and the people who decide who's the next General Secretary of the Labour Party are the 39 strong NEC, the ruling body of the Labour Party. They're the ones, it's not, it doesn't go out to membership then? Does not go out to membership so at all. It's not a democratic process. It's like choosing, you know, a CEO or whatever. It, you're not cho- chosen by the shareholders, you're chosen by the board. And, and so tradition has always been that the NEC, which is the supreme body of the Labour Party, don't forget at the end of the day, it's the rule-making oversight and in terms of management and hiring, it's always the NEC. Why is that? Because the NEC represents all bits of the Labour Party, unions, members, you know, co-ops, you name it, young Labour, all different bits of Labour Party come together on the NEC. It's supposed to be very representative. And that's why they... They will interview the candidates on March 20th in this fast-track process. It's only three weeks long. And they will um, then decide on this very same day after interviewing them whether or not they're going to give them the job. Ned, if John Lansman becomes General Secretary of the Labour Party, I mean, you... Th- this is a guy who was who was I mean was he ever out of the party but he certainly was in yeah. you know, in terms of influence he was, he was mm. nowhere wasn't he and now he's going to potentially be general secretary yeah. I mean 
is that that's the end for the Blairites? I yeah, mean, not I mean, there was much left. No, there. but ra- rapid rise for him. And I was actually with quite a few kind of Corbynistas when the news came through that McNichol had resigned, and they're all very happy about it because, like we said, they blame McNichol for the purge of Corbynistas in the election leadership campaign, and they were talking about the idea of landsman standing. A lot of them dismissed it though and didn't actually think that was <laughs> that it, it would be a likely outcome. So now they they can't believe. They can't believe it. They can't believe their luck. They're kind of more. They, they, we talk about kind of um, grassroots members here, so not people you know in positions of power in the party, but kind of momentum members, momentum activists who who couldn't be happier the idea of uh, landsmen. But even though there's been a lot of internal momentum battles between landsmen and the yeah. other side of momentum, so there's a lot of different sides. To but this. that's why ultimately, you know, it, it won't be the members that decide this. It will be the NEC. And so what it brings us back to is the complex structures within the NEC and the power battles that happen there. Often, things in the NEC aren't just straight left-right matters. Mm. They are about different trade unions wanting their own bit uh, of a say about various bits of policy. And that's why, when you break it down, it will come down to whether or not, for example, the GMB, do they want to back Unite, one of their rivals in the union movement, or do they do they want to back John Landsman, again, who they not, don't necessarily see eye to eye with? There's a lot of splitting going on here. Just finally, what was Ian McNichol's parting gift to the Labour Party today? Well, um, we revealed that um, Ian McNichol, in one of his final disciplinary acts as General Secretary, uh, is using this power to order an um, administrative suspension, as it's called, which means that you don't have the NEC deciding a suspension, you don't have other people, it's just the General Secretary, and he's decided to suspend indefinitely Ken Livingston uh, pending a full investigation into anti-Semitism claims against him. So that means that basically a lot of people were worried that Ken would would um, be automatically let back into the party in April because there'd been no investigation into his, his these claims against him. But that won't happen now. He will definitely have to face an investigation. Can I make a bold prediction about the General Secretary thing? I think someone else is going to come through the middle and either Landsman or Formby will pull out. Great. That's what I think. There might be someone else, and we've named the alternative candidates. Who? Emily mm-hmm. Oldno, who, Emily. as it happens, I didn't write this in copy, She's but married is married to John Ashworth. Yeah. But um, she is a long-standing Labour HQ official. She's basically been running the Labour Party for several months, but while McNichol's been getting on with other things. Um, so she knows the rule book like the back of her hand. So she's one you wouldn't rule out, but Lisa Johnson in the GMB is also somebody you shouldn't rule out because she could bridge the divide between all these warring factions. Really, really quick, really quick, quick. I feel like we're getting in the weeds. Go on. Really quick question. If Landsman does get it, does that mean Eddie Izzard gets yes, the NEC Yes, automatically yeah. Eddie Izzard is that's on the NEC because he's the next that, one that, down. That is the best thing you've ever brought to this podcast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, hold on. If that means that Landsman has to win for Izzard, then Landsman's going to lose because Izzard's yeah, yeah. to death. Right, okay, good. Let's move on very quickly to... Um, the in case you missed it this week, which is the survey of harassment in the Labour Party, is that right? Yes. Kate's going to tell us about this, but first of all, let's have a li- li- little listen to Stella Creasy talking about her reaction to the report. I was heartbroken. It's heartbreaking to read it, to read the systematic list of what's been happening, and also particularly, I was struck by the concept of common knowledge it talks about, that when some of these women had tried to report what happened, people said, oh yeah, yeah, we all know about him and what he behaves like, yeah. and gave them tips on how to deal with it, rather than stopping it. Kate, talk us through the 
but I mean, this has all come out of the. I mean, it's called Labour Two because the hashtag Me Too stuff, right? So it's very much in that kind of vein. Yeah. So basically, six Labour activists decided to set up this anonymous website where people could submit their own stories, um, and they've spoken to politicians, activists, uh, candidates, and staff from across the whole country. Uh, I think they had forty-three anonymous responses, which range from somebody saying that they were raped at party conference and quote nobody cared when they reported it um loads of women said that they've been sort of groped um while out campaigning by various councillors um one woman said she and one of her colleagues had to bodily put themselves in between a married male mp and a drunk teenager who was trying to take advantage of it's really grim reading um and they want labor to basically put in place a proper independent complaint system that's totally removed from any kind of politics and what's Labour's... Are they going to do that, Labour? They, are they going to... And this whole thing about a response to get back to you kind of thing? So they've ordered a review um, by that. Karen Monaghan, QC, who's looking at one specific case, which is an activist called Bex Bailey, who said she was raped. Um, and they are. she is specifically looking into how the party handled that. Um, but she is also going to make a series of recommendations about how they should deal with complaints better. And Labour have also appointed officials from Rape Crisis to like deal with complaints as well um but labor too said they're going to keep a close eye on monaghan's report when it comes out and if the recommendations don't go far enough then they're going to follow it up thanks so much for bringing us that update i'm sure it's something we'll talk about in the future i just want to quickly say the lib dems because we haven't mentioned them for about you just said <laughs> it yeah because we haven't mentioned about three months i just want to say lib dems hello are they, are they why do you do a quiz next week on lib dems who are the lib dems yeah, just, I just want to say, who's the Lib Dem MPs? When, when was the last time we mentioned the Lib Dems? Uh, I, can't, I can't. You remember. normally say it in, in association with, with Ned, don't you? But I do. Ned, why don't Which is unfair. So even now, yeah, it's the unfair Lib Dem thing with me. You've even yeah. forgotten that. I've forgotten that, mate. <laughs> That's quite good so, news. Yeah. So, no, so just Lib Dems. If you're out there, Lib Dems, hello. Keep up what you're doing. Ned spoke to Vince Cable. No one cared. Didn't you? On, Val- <laughs> on Valentine's Day? <laughs> he yeah. did, yeah. yeah. yeah because you put on a really nice suit and everything, didn't you? It was, it was just a suit. Yeah, but I never see you in a suit. <laughs> I see what he's wearing now. It looks like a turtle. He's got a green jumper on. Um, we've just been talking about how nice that jumper is. Oh, God. It's Thanks, awful. Kate. Unbelievable. Anyway, anything Lib Dem related to say? No. Right, okay, good. Thanks for listening, everyone. And um, no, no, Paul, there is no quiz this week because there was so much stuff to do. Oh. Wow. There was so much. Bre- don't blame me. Blame Brexit. Okay? Nothing to blame Brexit for. No quiz this he week. He is David Brandt. Hey, listen to the... I hope you're listening. Tweet us. Hashtag comments people, leave comments on iTunes so other people can find us or whatever service you use to get your podcast beautifulness. Alright, Ned? No. See you next week. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.